This episode is brought to you by Visit Salt Lake. Salt Lake is the perfect place for you to begin your genealogy research or delve deeper into your family's roots. Receive free access to the world's largest genealogy database at the Family History Library. Find a hotel room under $100 and dine at affordable and delectable restaurants. Plus, ride Salt Lake's light rail tracks for free in downtown. You don't have to travel all over the world to trace your roots. Start your journey of discovery in Salt Lake, the genealogy capital of the world. For more information, go to www.visitsaltlake.com slash genealogy. Welcome to the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. In this December 2011 episode of the podcast, our theme is Vital Records, and our first stop will be the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad, who has some breaking news on a website specializing in vital records. And since names are key to locating vital records, in our top tips segment, Family Tree Magazine contributing editor David Frixell is back to share tips from his new article called Name Dropping. And in our 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots, we'll look at the Western States Historical Marriage Index website. Then we'll be introducing a brand new segment to the show, the Social Media Minute with our own Carrie Scott. And in the Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Carrie will return in her role as Dean and Community Coordinator to tell us about a brand new series of classes for beginners. And finally, we'll check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan, publisher of Family Tree Magazine, who has four vital genealogy things for you to do as you wrap up 2011. There's a lot to cover, so let's get to it. Our first stop is the Genealogy News with Diane Haddad. Well, we're going to kick off this vital record-themed episode with news from the blogosphere, and here to give us the scoop is the genealogy insider blogger, Diane Haddad. Hi, Diane. Hi. Well, there is a website out there with lots of vital records, and some changes have been happening. Tell us what you've been talking about on your blog. Yeah, this was kind of big news in the genealogy industry. The site worldvitalrecords.com um, has been part of the Family Link uh, company. And that company was recently purchased by MyHeritage.com. Right. And this is not the first purchase that MyHeritage has made lately, is it? No, they've been um, expanding. They're based in Israel, and they've been getting bigger and bigger. And um, I think Back Up My Tree was a recent purchase. Mm -hmm. And they also, um, a few years ago, bought the Family Tree Legends website, which is how they, um, what that's what they based their Family Builder tree software off of. So they're growing and they opened a new office in Utah, which is where Family Link was based. So um, I was just on Rolled Vital Records and the site's already looking different and um, it has its branded now as a MyHeritage company. Wow, that happened really fast. So yeah. what we're talking about here is MyHeritage, who's I think probably m more well known for their family trees, their online sharing. Now they've got access to, what, 3 billion records with right. World Vital Records. This is pretty um, kind of an, a good mesh, I think, and might be very good for users. Yeah, yeah, they can put it all together now and people can do um, a lot more on the site. And it's not just 
vital records, even though that's in the name. It's also yearbooks and family history books and um, directories and all kinds of stuff. Exactly. Well, I'll have a link for you in the show notes so that you can read um, Diane's complete blog article on that, learn more about what the acquisition means for you in the coming year. And you've also been writing on the blog about something else, not vital records related, but kind of fun. Tell us about that. Yeah, the History Pin website is... Um it's it's hard to describe. <laughs> it's a site where users can go and upload pictures and then pin them to Google Maps that are um, showing the places where whatever is in the picture happened. So if it's a street scene of um, someplace in Washington, D.C., for example, they the person or organization like the National Archives would pin the photo to Washington, D.C., and then they can write information about it. Exactly. And you were writing about in your article that the National Archives is is partnering now with History Pin, who's actually out of the UK, right? and pinning some of their images and, and information. This reminds me a lot of what we do in the uh, Google Earth for Genealogy uh-huh. video series. From we can get You can get that at Shop Family Tree. That's uh, a DVD series I do where you can do this same sort of thing in Google Earth. And now it looks like what History Pin is doing is then getting together with archives of that have images and putting it on a, a cloud-based website so that everybody can can partake in those images, right? Right, and even um, you know regular people can upload pictures. I was thinking I would upload my grandfather's cigar storefront from Cincinnati to the Cincinnati um, photos. So yeah. You can go see, you know, what's available for the places where your ancestor lived. And you can, just like in Google Earth, you can put the historical photo on top of a map. A and you use that transparency to look at the mm-hmm. old days and the new days. Yeah, yeah, it's neat. Yeah, it's neat. Well, I noticed in your blog post you were having a hard time uh, getting back to work because you were having so much fun in Cincinnati, right? A little bit too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I will let you go back to work. But thank you so much for telling us about these. And again, we'll have links to Diane's blog posts on both History Pin and My Heritage in the show notes. Thanks, Diane. You're welcome. Did you know that there may be clues in your ancestor's given name that could help you identify earlier generations? Well, in today's top tips segment, we're going to find out what those clues might be from our friend David Frixell. He's the author of the new article called Name Dropping. It's going to appear in the January 2012 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Welcome back, David. Thanks for having me back. Great to be here. You know, David, it is so easy to get focused on surnames and just kind of, you know, be tunnel vision about those. But in your article, you really do a great job of reminding us that the given name is certainly not to be overlooked for genealogical clues. Tell us what specifically you're talking about when you say that there are clues to be found in the given name. Well, thanks. And it's important to characterize them as you do as clues, because there's no sure thing here, you know, just because... Uh, there's some naming tradition that suggests that your ancestor had to be named Bob. doesn't mean he's absolutely positively named Bob, but there, it is a way to, you know, I'm always looking for ways to get through around brick walls because sometimes you have to have some idea or theory in which to research, and that's really what these can give you. So the most common um, pattern really was in the British Isles, but of course that was brought to America, and most of the other uh, European countries, a lot of them followed the same basic pattern. 
And that, not too surprisingly, is naming your children their first names after uh, the, the parents and then the parents' parents as the grandparents and so forth. So in the British Isles, and this is, again, this is true in a lot of other countries. So the first son was named after the father's father, the second son after the mother's father, the third son after the father, we, which is sort of interesting. We might expect that the father's name would come first, but actually, typically that was third. And then if you had more kids, you get into um, the father's eldest brother, for example. And then daughters followed the same sort of pattern, uh, the first daughter after the mother's mother, the second daughter after the father's mother, then the third daughter be named for the mother, and the fourth daughter after the mother's eldest sister, and so forth. So if you have an ancestor who, let's say, is the third male child, um, and you do, but you don't know what dad's name was, a good guess, if they're from that tradition, might be to investigate to see whether the father has, might be, have the same name as the child. Exactly. It gives you a place to look, particularly when you have a fairly common last name and you're trying to narrow down who to put your energy into first. Exactly. And, you know, sometimes you, it's just, you run into complete brick walls. I have them where uh, I've traced back on the paternal side a long ways, and then I know the wife's name, and that's pretty much it. I'm just guessing as to, you know, who the father is. But if I had something to go on, um, some naming pattern that might give me a clue, um, you know, so that if, uh, for example, the second son uh, in the family uh, that's a mystery to me was named Robert, maybe mom's father was also named Robert. Again, you can't be sure, mm -hmm. but it's certainly worth it investigating, you know, Robert Smith to go see if uh, you can, you know, prove that out. Now, one thing that you talked about that was also influencing given names is the fact that when a child was born, oftentimes, if they were born near a saint's day, then that would also play into the name. Tell us about that. Yeah, that, uh, not having any uh, Italian or Eastern European heritage in my family, this was completely new to me, but it's interesting. Um, Italy, Poland, and the Ukraine all had variations on this. Um, so typically, um, the child might be named after the saint whose saint's day was closest to the birthday. And there are, in the article, we took, give some websites where you can look up in the various countries and, and traditions and so forth what St. Days, you know, that it might be. Um, and so not only will that give you a clue to yeah, on the, something about the name, but it, it sort of goes backwards and you can figure out roughly when they might be born, even in, the, in terms of the calendar year. Oh, that's another great clue. <laughs> that's, that's a wonderful uh, aspect. So aspect you're, you're sort of working yeah. backwards, and backwards or sideways, in effect, um, yeah. you know, to, do, to figure that out. Exactly. And now, I was also reading, uh, as I was reviewing the article, that in Spanish and Mexican traditions, um, they sometimes really pile up the given names. And sometimes the priest added on a name just on his own when he was doing the church records. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, if, in America now, we're so used to, you know, the parents pick out, buy the baby name book, and they, you know, pick out the name and so forth. But, boy, it didn't always necessarily work there. In traditional Hispanic families, um, at baptism, first the child might be given one or two extra names, such as the name of, the, again, the saint associated with the baptismal day, um, although you might never be actually referred to by that name. 
And then, as you mentioned, in church records, the parish priest might just add on typically Jose or Maria after Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, to the child's name. And if you find that name in there, you might just have to ignore it. So you might be going through finding your Spanish ancestor, and it's, you know, you, you are confused because there's a Jose in front of it. And you think, well, that can't be my, you know, great-grandfather, but it probably is. Just whack off, ignore that Jose um, and uh, see if it matches otherwise. Otherwise, it could be very confusing because you have these extra names, um, and there might be a big pileup of them, and they might never ever be called by that in life. So it's pretty funny. Yeah, and, and it's so important. I mean, that really drives home the whole idea that it's so important to really understand the history and the context of the time and the place where ancestors uh, were born to better understand and interpret what was important and kind of what is a, a side note, if you will. Now, I'm from a German family, so I'm pretty familiar with some of the German naming traditions. Um, but it's really interesting. Once my family came over to America uh, on my mother's side in 1910, those traditions really kind of started to morph. You know, I'm the the seventh female in the maternal line with the name Louise as part of my name, but it changes to a middle name once they get to the U.S. Do you find that that's true with other nationalities, that the naming conventions change and morph once they make that immigration? That's certainly true, that, that you begin to lose that. Um, and the Germans, in fact, I quote in the, in the article um, some experts who say, you know, don't listen to the myths that these these naming patterns were adhered to very strictly once they got over to America. That that's just simply not not the case. That you know you shouldn't be you know confused by that. Um, you know, the most dramatic. My ancestry um, is half Scandinavian, and of course in Scandinavia, uh, you you the first name became the start of the last name because they had the patronymic naming system, and of course that all got abandoned once you. Uh, um, came to America. So the whole, all these schemes, really all bets are off once they you know, come to the United States. I think probably the, the most likely one that would hang on is um, br- British kind of pattern, um, which might follow in families uh, like in the Old South, for example, where uh, you know, they, they trace their family back, many generations back through Virginia and so forth. They might still follow some of those patterns, um, but it's certainly not a uh, hard and fast rule. Even back in the old country, it's not a hard and fast rule. Right. Well, th- this is all really great information as far as giving us that background that we need to know so we can um, make better leaps in terms of which direction to follow. And don't be discouraged. You know, David covers a lot of different countries and nationalities in this article. So we've got Polish, Italian, French and French-Canadian, Hungarian, Jewish, all types of different names and origins that give you the background, give you that history that you need to know to understand to um, make some of these different uh, detections of names in your family. And again, the article is called Name Dropping. It's going to be in the January 2012 issue of Family Tree Magazine. And fascinating as, as always, David, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Thanks so much. When someone makes the decision to want to learn more about their family history, you have to start somewhere. And there's no better place to start than securing a solid understanding of the records that are available to you. Well, in this Family Tree University Crash Course segment, Carrie Scott will tell us about her new series of first step classes that give newbies a firm foundation. Welcome back to the show, Carrie. Thank you. 
You know, when you and I, of course, you and I have been doing genealogy for quite some time, but I certainly remember how daunting it seemed at first. Tell us what you've been putting together to help newbies get past that feeling of being overwhelmed and start digging into records. Well, I think when I started out, it was I was not familiar with vital records and how they worked and how I could get them and how to interpret them in particular. Um, it was really intimidating and it took me a while to really get comfortable. And um, birth, marriage and divorce records are something that are universal to every family, regardless of your ethnic background or how long your family's been in the U.S. Um, those are going to be really important records for you. So I wanted to put together something that helped people build a solid foundation and really be comfortable working with those records, not just in how to order them, but how to interpret them and take the information that's there and really apply it to their research plan so that they can go farther in their research. Uh, It sounds like a, a great, like I say, solid foundation, because there's those major record groups that are the bulk of what we do in the beginning. Um, tell us, you've got three classes set up to begin with. How long are they and what do each one cover? Well, the first one, the Discover Your Family Tree course is for true beginners. That one is two weeks long. It has three lessons and it gives you a very basic foundation on how to cite your sources, how to analyze a document, just a, a really basic foundation for people who are new to genealogical research and aren't sure where to start. They know they want to do it, but they don't know where to start. The next course uh, is the Using Birth Records course, which helps you understand how to work with birth certificates certificates and birth records, and also how to find records of birth if you're working in an area or an era where birth records aren't available. For example, um, not all states have had um, birth certificates until the ni- until really after 1907. So you need to understand where to find birth records if you're working before that era or in a state where it's just not available. So we go over uh, in that one things like official birth certificates, but also delayed birth certificates, amended birth certificates, and alternative sources like church records and military records and so forth, so that you can find birth dates and places for your ancestors because that's so important in terms of moving backwards. That's really a foundation because not only does it pertain to that ancestor, but it also tells you where the family was at that point in time, where you might find the siblings' records and so forth. So it's really a pivotal piece of information. And then the next class is on marriage and divorce records. Most of us have marriages, and if you go back far enough, most of us have divorces in our family trees as well. So understanding Again, where to find the official records, how to interpret them, how to understand what these records mean, and also how to find alternative sources of that information if there is an official record available for those ancestors. The pricing is a little different for these courses as well. Most of our FTU courses are either $99 or $199, depending on the length. They're either four weeks or eight weeks. These courses are a little bit different. The first Discover Your Family Tree course is actually $19.99, which is a great uh, entry point for people who are beginning to get started in their research. And the ones on birth records and on marriage and divorce records are only $39.99. And our smartest FTU students know that if you watch, you can often get coupon codes, especially if you sign up for our newsletters or our Twitter or Facebook feeds, um, you can get discounts on those as well. So it gives people an opportunity to get started and get their feet wet without making quite as big of an investment. Hmm, Exactly. Now, I know that this is just um, 
the first in several new things that are coming down the pipeline at Family Tree University. Tell us maybe what we might see in additional classes in this series and then what's coming up new uh, in other areas. We have all kinds of new stuff coming. I am a very busy person these days because I'm working on all kinds of new stuff, particularly on the Family Tree University side. Uh, One thing that we're launching actually uh, in the middle of December is our Power Course series, which allows people to sign up for a one-week Power Course where they can get several different components of education in a particular area. So in December, we have one on immigration records and one on brick wall busters. I don't know anybody who doesn't work with immigration records and brick wall busters. So those are really um, a good opportunity for people to spend usually about two hours per course. We figure it's about the length of a movie and most people can fit in a movie per week. Um, So instead of sitting and watching a movie, why not invest in your genealogical research? So it gives people a good opportunity to focus on a particular topic for just one week. Um, Those will be live on our website in the middle of December. And we also are working on expanding our webinar options. Right now, we usually do one webinar a month. We're going to be looking at doing two a month starting in January. And we're going to continue to focus on state research because it's so important to understand the unique uh, genealogical properties of each state and understand the ins and outs. And we, re- we try and get insiders who can really give us the ins and outs of particular states' resources. But we have other topics as well that we'll be talking about. In January, for example, I'll be sharing some information from my own blog on how to uh, make money on your blog. So many people are putting together genealogical blogs or genealogy blogs, and there are ways that you can actually make a little extra money for your research on that. So we'll be talking a little bit about that in the first webinar in January, and we have other topics that we're expanding on as well. In addition to that, we're looking at expanding our course offerings. I'm working right now to um, add some of our ethnic courses. We'd like to do something with Italian research. We'd like to do something with Scandinavian research. Um, So we have a number of things that we're doing at Family Tree University. So people should definitely keep an eye on that because we will be greatly expanding the number of things that we have to offer this year. Well, and that brings me to my final question. How can people stay in touch with what's going on? Is there a newsletter or a way to to, uh, register to get updates as they come through? There is. People can always, of course, they can find us on our website, familytreeuniversity.com. There's a newsletter sign up on there. So that's a good way to stay informed. We send that out every two weeks and we keep people informed on new courses, what's coming up, new webinars and so forth. And our Twitter and Facebook accounts as well are good ways. You can get information on the Family Tree Magazine or the Family Tree University Twitter or Facebook accounts. And those links are on our website as well. Oh, well, fantastic. So now Family Tree University not only helps the experienced genealogists, but the newbies, the absolute beginners have a place to start and uh, get involved in all the excitement. It sounds terrific. Thank you so much, Carrie, for joining us and sharing all the news. Thank you. In this 101 Best Websites for Tracing Your Roots segment, I've got a great little vital record site for you. For nearly three decades, the Brigham Young University Idaho Arthur Porter Special Collections area of the David O. McKay Library in Rexburg, Idaho has been extracting early marriage records from counties in the western part of the United States for the Western States Marriage Index, which is available online. And this is a little bit of a long uh, URL, but it's a B I S H dot B Y U I 
www.westernstates.edu. And then you go into Special Collections, Western States, and the search page. I will have a complete URL address to get you directly to the Western States Marriage Index page uh, in the show notes, or you can just Google Western States Marriage Index. Most of the pre-1900 marriages are included in the index for Arizona, Idaho, and Nevada. And many of those states' counties have been extracted into the 1930s and well beyond. But the index doesn't stop there, because you'll also find a substantial number of marriages from selected counties in California, western Colorado, Montana, Oregon, Utah, eastern Washington, and Wyoming. And now, very early marriages back to the 1700s in New Mexico are being added. I'll have a link to the list of counties by state in the show notes for you. Currently, the index contains over 700,000 marriage records from additional entries being added nearly every day. And their goal is to have marriages from all 12 Western states available to family historians. For now, they're making what they have available online. But keep in mind that it isn't a complete collection yet, and there are still some quality checking of the transcriptions that needs to be done. So what might you find in the Western States Marriage Index? Well, each entry in the index may include the names of the bride and groom, marriage date and place, the county and state in which the marriage is recorded, residency of the bride and or the groom, and perhaps even some miscellaneous comments. Unfortunately, the parents of the bride and groom are seldom mentioned in these marriage records, so it's important that you make an effort to view the original marriage record to see if there's any other additional information to be sure that the transcription was indeed accurate. And if while you're using the index you find an error, you can help out. Be sure and head to the Submitting Names page where you'll find information on how to notify them about the error. And if you're interested in helping out with the project, you can do that as well. You can get in touch with the Idaho Falls Regional Family History Center at 208-496-2386 or you can email them at familyhistory at byui.edu. Now, to help you get the most out of the index, I've got some search tips for you. First, the Western States Marriage Records Index is an exact spelling search engine. It won't automatically search for variant spellings for your family names. So if you can't find what you're looking for, here are some steps to follow. First, take a look at the list of counties and time periods included to make sure that the index covers the location and the time that you're looking for. Then try a search by full name of the bride. And if your results are negative, then search by the full name of the groom. If you're still not finding a marriage entry, try searching by the last name of the bride only. And then try searching for the last name of the groom only. You can search an entire county by selecting only the state and the county fields. And if you do this from the advanced search page and specify a date range, the list is going to come up chronologically instead of alphabetically. Now, the good news is that wildcard searching is supported. So by default, right-hand truncation is provided for both first and last names. So for example, if you enter a first name of M.A., you could get such names as Matthew, Marvin, or Mark. You can also use a percent sign to look for variations of spellings in the middle of the name. So if you search on B percent N, it could then find Ben, Benjamin, Bernard, or Barnaby. 
You can even define a range of characters between brackets. So, for example, if you want to search for the surname Olson, you could search on OLS bracket EO bracket N. And that way you're going to get both Olson with an E and Olson with an O. It's great. It covers both at the same time. And there you have it, a great vital records resource for those of you with ancestors who made it out west. This episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast is sponsored by Visit Salt Lake. And joining me right now is Caitlin Eskelson, Director of Tourism Sales for Visit Salt Lake. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the items on just about Every genealogist's wish list is, of course, a trip to Salt Lake City and the incredible Family History Library. Tell us about some of the great discounts uh, that you can take advantage of when you make that trip. Sure. Well, you know, we always have discounts available, you know, through some of our online you know, travel agency partners. So one of the best places to look is through our online booking engine, which is powered by Travelocity. So on a pre-departure basis, that is a great place to kind of book your book your vacation. But then once you get here, we have some great hot deals that can be found on our website at visitsaltlake.com. And if you go onto that website and click on the left-hand side, there's a tab called Hot Deals. And that basically gives all sorts of deals in the categories of restaurants, activities, lodging, shopping, you know, anything that a customer would be looking for. That's terrific. So really, the website's the place to start and kind of work your way through as you're creating your whole trip. And that is that you can see what's available, places to go, things to do. But then you have these ongoing discounts that the local uh, vendors and and restaurants are offering. That sounds terrific. It's kind of nice to save a, a few pennies as you're planning, you know, a trip that you really want to invest your time and energy in. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the hot deals are always changing. So, for someone that's coming into Salt Lake, you know, they can look up that day and there they might be things that are specific for that week of their arrival, um, you know, or things that are ongoing. But there are some great deals, you know, 20% off restaurants and, you know, who doesn't want shopping gift certificates and that sort of thing. So they're all found right there on visitsaltlake.com. Oh, that sounds terrific. Okay. So when you plan your next trip to Salt Lake City and, of course, visiting the Family History Library and all the other incredible sites in the Salt Lake City area, head to Visit Salt Lake at visitsaltlake.com. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. This is Carrie Scott, the social media expert at Family Tree Magazine. Connecting and collaborating with other genealogists or newfound cousins is a challenge most of us face sooner or later. I'll tell you about a new tool from Google that will help in this edition of the Social Media Minute. Google Plus is a new social media tool from Google. Its closest cousin in the social media world would be Facebook, but there are some distinct differences between the two sites. Facebook is designed for broad sharing, with an emphasis on including most of your friends in most of your activities. Google Plus is designed for more focused sharing, with an approach that encourages you to share only with a few people who find your current post or activity relevant. That difference has attracted hundreds of genealogists who have flocked to Google Plus since it launched last summer. It's created a place for them to talk about family history without being distracted by games or politics. 
Google Plus groups all of your friends into circles, which makes it a great tool for collaborating on research. You can use it to group a specific set of relatives together to identify people in photos or figure out who owned which heirlooms. You can also create a circle of genealogists working on a particular surname or location to work together on untangling family lines. Google Plus also has an integrated video chat feature, which is a nice tool for genealogical society committees. Check out our podcast show notes page for links to more information. You can also find our one-hour webinar on how genealogists can best use Google Plus at shopfamilytree.com. As we wrap up this December 2011 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, let's check in at the publisher's desk with Allison Dolan. Hi, Allison. Hi, Lisa. Well, how does that feel? I'm calling it Allison Dolan. I-, I like the sound of it. Are you enjoying marriage? I am. It's um, hard to change your name, but <laughs> I really do um, enjoy uh, enjoy it so far. Well, now you no longer have two first names for a name, right? Uh, that's right. <laughs> Actually, that's the best part about it. <laughs> No more confusion. Everyone knows which one's my first name and which one's my last name. That's great. Well, perfect. Well, let's see here. We're, we're talking in this episode about uh, vital records and genealogy, but you have some vital ideas of your own. Tell us uh, what you've got for us at the end of this whole year of genealogy podcasts. Well, you know, vital records, vital statistics, vital things about your genealogy. That's really what I've been thinking about because the holiday season is um, such a harried and busy and exciting time of year. Um, It's easy to get distracted from genealogy. And so here are four vital things that I think every genealogist should be doing this month. All right. So you've got four for us. What's the first one? Well, the first one, um, I would be remiss if I didn't do a little blatant self-promotion here. Um, take advantage of the holiday deals at shopfamilytree.com. <laughs> We've got a lot yeah. of sales going on, just like all the other retailers out in the world. And um, you can get some really good deals on those genealogy products that you've had your eye on all year um, between some of our kits and books and CDs and article downloads. Now's the time to um, maybe you can use a little bit of that extra Christmas money um, to take advantage of those deals. Perfect. Well, and of course, when we sign up for your newsletter, we're going to get those into our inbox. So we'll know because I've seen some really good discounts come through. So that's, that's very vital. What's your next vital genealogy thing to do? Well, the next thing is, you know, everybody spends time with their family during the holidays between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I think we see more of our relatives than we do the rest of the year for a lot of us. Right. I know that's the way it is in my family anyway. So, you know, that's really a good opportunity to do some genealogy work, whether it's, you know, oral history interviewing or actually if you're going to grandma and grandpa's house, you could do a little scavenger hunt, walk around with them, ask them about some of the stuff that they have, whether it's old photo albums or artifacts or or what have you. Um, And, you know, before you're going to these gatherings, just make sure you take a little bit of time to review your charts and notes and just figure out what you might ask relatives about. So if, you know, you're going to be seeing some relative that you don't talk to normally, maybe they're the one who um, has information about a certain part of the family that you're trying to flesh out and they would be able to help you. That's a great idea to brush up on what we already have so we know what we're looking for. And then, of course, holidays means gifts. Do you have some vital gift ideas? Well, I do. Um, Actually, talking about stuff that um, relatives have, my grandmother recently um, gave me a bunch of stuff that she's been collecting um, 
of genealogy for many, many years when she and my grandfather downsized recently. And so um, I've been spending some time going through and seeing what's in those boxes. And um, I found in one of them a whole bunch of pictures that um, are from my dad and his siblings when they were little. And so one of the things that I was thinking about doing is creating a small photo book or maybe just burning some of those to a CD once I, you know, I could scan a bunch of those really quickly and that would make a really good gift. And so there's lots of easy things that you could do um, to give to relatives that would be more meaningful than just your regular garden variety gift from the mall. Um, in the January 2012 issue of the magazine, I did a little tutorial on this site called mypublisher.com where you can actually create a little um, mini album of four by six photos for only $2.99. So if you think about like what the cost of a typical greeting card is, it's almost a wash. Um, and so I just think doing something like that really brings a smile to people's faces and creates a lasting memory. Well, and, and receiving something like that could also facilitate the conversation afterwards, after they open up the present, that could be the thing that prompts those additional memories. And oh, yeah, what about that box in the, in the attic? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. As, as a matter of fact, with those pictures I was speaking about of my dad and his siblings, I just was thinking about how it would be great to bring those out and have everybody talk about the memories associated with them. Oh, and, and record the whole conversation. Yep. Oh, sounds great. And then number four. Well, I kind of just alluded to this, but, you know, making new memories with your family, it, it's easy to get caught up in all the hustle and bustle of the holiday time, and it becomes kind of a stress instead of a joy. So my fourth vital thing to do is just as you're spending time with your families, make sure that you make time to enjoy the, the time that you're spending with your relatives and um, making those new memories so that it's a happy occasion and not a stressful one. Exactly. I know at our house, I'm going to be uh, taking my little grandson, Davey, into the kitchen, and we're going to take out one of my grandmother's old recipes. And uh, I don't know, you know, how much uh, real baking he's going to do, but I'm sure there's some, some stirring and some licking that can happen on his part. But we're going to do some cooking in the kitchen. And I think it'd be kind of fun to create new memories while revisiting some old ones like grandma's recipes. So that sounds like a great fun. Yeah, well, wonderful. Those, I think those, that's a very good vital list for genealogy things to do over the holidays. And um, Allison, it's been such a fun year. Thank you so much. And um, you have a wonderful Christmas and New Year's. And we'll see you on the other side in 2012. Sounds good. Happy holidays to all of our listeners. See you next year. Thanks so much for joining me for this December 2011 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the monthly show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Here are a couple of action items for you until we meet up again next month. First, be sure and visit the Genealogy Insider blog for all the latest genealogy news on a daily basis. You'll find it at blog.familytreemagazine.com slash insider. Next, go to familytreemagazine.com slash podcast to find the show notes for this episode. And those are going to include information and website links for everything we talked about on today's show, including the Western State Historical Marriage Index website. Then finally, head on over to shopfamilytree.com to take advantage of those holiday deals that Allison told us about. 
Most importantly, have a wonderful holiday season with your family as you enjoy your long-held family traditions, as well as create some new memories. From all of us here at Family Tree Magazine, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And we'll be back in 2012 with an exciting new slate of podcast episodes for you. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Happy New Year, everyone. And until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.